Hello everyone, thank you very much for coming. Uh, David Morley is an ecologist and naturalist by, by background, though maybe not, not for a while, um, and so currently is uh, teaching at Warwick University and also I read in Australia, yep. is that right? And, um, and I did want to mention your uh, Writing Challenges podcast, which is um, not that recent, so look up the, the Writing Challenges podcast. David Morley has won numerous awards and prizes, including a Ted Hughes Award um, for The Invisible Gift, which is a wonderful prize, I think, the Ted Hughes uh, Award. So that's, that's really great. And um, when we uh, hear uh, the, the titles um, uh, that David Morley uses, Enchantment, The Magic of What's There, uh, we can sense a preoccupation with what can't be seen and um, uh, poetry perhaps of myth, imagination and mystery. So uh, we're in really for a treat and also um, about how we, what we experience in daily life can be revisioned by how it is seen and experienced or written about, which is what um, David does as a poet so marvellously. So I will hand you over to David Morley. Thank you. Thank you very much. My excellent assistant here is going to be helping. Good evening, everyone. <laughs> Um, as I was driving across, I stopped off at British Camp, a place I go to quite a lot, that cleft at the Malvern Hills. And I walked up there, and there was nobody up there at all. And it reminded me that I'd written a number of poems set around there, <laughs> which I hadn't included in tonight's set at all. But I'll read you one of them. And this one's called The Way In. There's still a light, those enchanted street lamps, between Little Malvern and Great Malvern. There are chains of them beneath British camp, bobbing like scuts of gas at twilight. Lamps peter up the hillside to the wells and flicker half visibly behind bare oaks, outblazed by headlights of delivery trucks, shrieking through gears on drives of high hotels. Those lamp lanes are Christmas to my boys at any dusk, or in any season. Winter days nod, and the short light goes. I read them stories as those low lamps glow. Their dreams will line the lanes with Narnians. The way in takes them running through the snow. That was certainly prompted by knowing that uh, C.S. Lewis is alcoholic brother Warner and J.R.R. R. Tolkien spent a lot of time in Great Melvin walking on the Melvin Hills. And that Narnia, the street lamps in Narnia, was um, started in C.S. Lewis's head by those very street lamps that he saw between Great Melvin and Little Melvin. Um, thus, this summit presented itself. <laughs> um, another poem that presented itself, because it wasn't really written by me, um, and I'll give you a very jaunty reading tonight, by the way, I'll have you know, uh, of much shorter pieces compared to my usual, you know, uh, massive Romney epics. <laughs> uh, so I did debate. No, no, keep it tight. Um, this poem is written by a dunnock, uh, which is also known as a hedge sparrow. Um, a dunnock. Uh, this is not some uh, poetic trope. This is reality. I am a scientist, <laughs> Chloe. I do deal not just in myths, but also in the realities of myth and the mythical realities of nature. Uh, and I, ha I work in a, in, a, in a little shed, a little stone shed in Leetwooden near Warwick. And I have my door open most of the time. And while I was typing away on a particular piece in this book, a 
baby Dunnock, a fledgling Dunnock, uh, flew haphazardly in through the door and landed upon my keyboard and excreted. And excreted upon the letter Q. And uh, this poem was typed immediately before I even picked up the little fluff ball and threw it out of the door. I quam a quonach. And in this moment, moment's minion, a fledgling dunnock skydives through the open door of my writing shed, catches itself crossly in my hair, <laughs> crash lands crabbily on the keyboard, fleetingly pressing the letter Q. Tweeting. Hashtag. <laughs> I quam. A quonach. Hashtag. I quam quiting a quorum. Most of us test users have been very amused by the idea of live tweeting. <laughs> and this, I'm reading this next poem purely because Alison Breckenbury is in this audience, who's a, an old friend of mine, and I much admire and who selected poems, much to her consternation and embarrassment, I advertise here as one of the best selected poems of the past decade. This only came out about five weeks ago. I ordered my own copy. That's how keen I was. And there it is. It's just a great book. It's a great book. Anyway, I'm reading this because Alison picked up this poem on Twitter once when this book came out. It's called The Grace of JCBs. I have to say it was written before the manager of JCB's <coughs> as a leave voter. But put that to one side. Um, <laughs> and apologies to any leave voters. The, the, the grace of JCB's. I just wanted to write a poem about wood anemones, but I was also wanted to write a poem about JCB's. <laughs> and they both got mixed up. <laughs> Terribly, if so. But the grace of JCB's. Spring detonates on time thanks to wood anemones. Woodland is one without a million of them. JCB's squat on fly-blown gull-flocked hills. They are king of rat and glory to the gulls. Wood anemones slink through crumbs of soil, heads bowed by darkness, darkness limbed by toil. JCB's shovel rancid rubbish over tilth. They rule by ramming everything in sight. Anemones explode like stars or solar flare. They glow and glister on the forest floor. JCBs chew up tonnage and spit out filth. Magpies choose their JCB and stick by him. Wood anemones shift sidelong to the sun. Their shoots are metronomes in slow emotion. Rucks erupt in raptures around a JCB, their Midas, Grail, the Holy of Holies. Wood anemones harvest ultraviolet rays. Early bees are drawn, droning to their gaze. Nothing saddens a JCB more than a stalled JCB. He ploughs across the planet to hold him steady. The lives of wood anemones are swift. We hail their fleet and fleetness, their golden crisis. 
JCBs squat on fly-blown bird-flocked hills. Spring detonates on time thanks to JCBs. <laughs> What is that? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, how are we doing with the... Uh, oh, yeah, I, can't yeah. I can't do this without you. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> um, this, this little poem is called Bears. Now, um, those who know The Invisible Kings will know that that book came out of the fact that I'm half Romany and can speak Romany. Um... The Romany names for towns and uh, counties in uh, England are very interesting because they always say something about what gypsies feel about those places. So, for example, uh, Dinello in Romany means fool, whereas Dinello Tem uh, means sorry. So what does that <laughs> say about it? <laughs> um, whereas, um, um, but, but Lil and Gav is Romany for Oxford. And means a town. It means two things. It means a town made of books. Oh, yes. It can also mean a town made of readers. Um, anyway, in this little poem, which is set in Victorian times, and which for the scholars amongst you, of which I'm sure there are plenty of Romany scholars, uses an Anglo-Romany idiom, which is specifically Victorian, around 1870, to describe the uh, movement of two circus birds following a circus around England. Now, those of you who quite rightly are into the animal rights of birds will think this is the most dreadful thing for them to do. Although, if you know gypsies, you will know that animals always come first. Um, so, anyway, uh, the poem kind of gives you the translation of the names as we go through. Bears. The names of the birds are Pawpaw and Paprika, which are real Romany names of the Victorian times. In fact, I thought about calling one of my children. Paw -paw. <laughs> <laughs> I recalled my senses by my wife. <laughs> His name is now Gabriel. Yeah, Pawpaw and Paprika, two great bears of the Egyptians of Lancashire, the Witches' County, Chorhiniski Tem, who, when our camp plucked its tents and pulled out its maps, walked steadily with the wagons, ambling, always ambling all across the open pages of wet England, footing as far as Papineski Tem, the flat duck county, crossing to Kuro Mengreski Gav, the boxer's town, Nottingham, padded on to Porb Panugi Tem, Apple Water County, Herefordshire, as good for bears as for their gypsy masters, although who is master is moot after much apple water, <laughs> then to bide by Bokra Mengreski Tem, Shepherd's County, Sussex. Mm -hmm. For their collies are trained not to bark at bears, but slyly, gently, slink big-eyed as children behind their shepherd's greeting. <laughs> ambling mm -hmm. bears, always ambling. Mm -hmm. Mooching to my Develeski Tem, my God's town. The God for all bears too. God of paws and padding, a polar, cardiac and koala, sniffing superiorly through Dinelo Tem, the fool's county, circling with our circus the Sham Ingreski Gav, chairmaker's town, nosing north through Lil Ingreski Gav, a town made of readers. Well, then pause over eyes for Kaolo Gav, the black town. Joy at Ginem Ingreski Gav, the sharpest town, to Lancashire as it was then, 
wider county of white witches, to the clean camps, the great brown bears of the Egyptians, to pawpaw and paprika. Backwards in time they go. Pad. Pad. Goodbye. Now, obviously, you're thirsting to know the translation for these words now. Um, and you'll find them in my notes. <laughs> 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 I was boasting to Leslie Ingram. I'd been because um, I was knew I was doing an event tonight. I ended up doing an inordinate amount of work this morning, and then I realised that although I'd added like seven pages to a book, at least three of those pages have been notes. <laughs> yes, sir. Yeah. How much? Are, where are we? I'm not sure. Maybe four. Excellent. Yeah. Oh, excellent. This is where you join in. What's your name? Helen. Hello. Excellent. Good. <laughs> 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 Jolly well here. <laughs> <clears throat> Excuse me, David. Uh, yes. you, you seem to utter the sound Bokra. Yes. It's Arabic for tomorrow. Yes. Yes. Um, Romani, as we all discussed in the Q&A, um, is uh, derived from Sanskrit, but it's also derived from uh, hundreds of loan words from different languages. Mm-hmm. Um, so you'll find uh, a phrase coming up called Kakarachi, mm-hmm. which is uh, magpie. And uh, it's inflected from Spanish and Italian, but also just simply from onomatopoeia. Mm-hmm. And they, I should have said this, the gypsies were called in Victorian times, they were called the Egyptians, a misnomer based upon simply the proximity of gypsies to Egyptians. In this poem chorus, you have to join in, as you know. <laughs> Once been twice shy, I lost a <clears throat> I say I say a couple of phrases, and then you have to say uh, the dawn is the chorus. Easy, huh? Uh, and you start off very low, and you get higher and higher, and there are top marks available for those who don't, <laughs> and very poor marks available for those who don't. And anybody who's feeling shy, tell me my heart goes out to you. If some poet had come into my school or into a bookshop and said, we're going to participate in this poem, my heart would have fallen to the floor. Why the hell did I come to this thing? I'm not supposed to do anything. So, you know, you have my sympathy. And also, you don't, simultaneously. That's the nature of superposition, isn't it? Right. Uh, so I say a couple of phrases, and I wave my glasses in a rather dictatorial way, and you say, the dawn is the chorus. And we get louder and louder and louder to see what we get. At which point I'll stop waving my glasses and you don't have to say anything at all. This is a, a poem that was written almost immediately upon the birth of uh, my youngest child, Edward, Daniel Keenan Morley. Chorus. The song thrush slams down gauntlets on its snail anvil. The nightjar murmurs a nightmare. Very good. That's the end. It <laughs> 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 can be a bit lower than that. Right. The bittern blasts the mist wide with a booming foghorn. The nuthatch nails another hatch shut. The, the merlin bowls a boomerang over bracken and catches it. The capercaillie uncorks its bottled throat. The tree creeper tips the trees upside down to trick out insects. The sparrow sorts spare parts in the pavement. Excellent, Chloe, well done. (laughs) The hoopoe hoops rainbows over the heath and hedgerows. The wren runs rings through its throat. The, 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 the turnstones do precisely what is asked of them by name. 
the Rhineck and stone chats also. The dawn is the chorus. The buzzards mew and mount up on a thermos thermometer. The smew slide on shy woodland water. The dawn is the chorus. The heron hangs its head before hurling down its guillotine. The tern twists on tines of two sprung wings. The dawn is the chorus. The ida sheds its pillows, releases snow flurry after snow flurry. The avocet unclaps its compass points. The dawn is the chorus. The swallow unmakes the spring and names the summer. The swift sleeps only when it's dead. The dawn is the chorus. The bullfinch's feather fight a birdbath into a bloodbath. The wagtail wags its wand, then vanishes. The dawn is the chorus. The corncrake zips its comb on its expert fingertip. The robin blinks at you for breakfast. <laughs> the ruck roots into roadkill for the heart and hardware. The tawny owl wakes us to our widowhood. The dawn is the chorus. The dawn is completely composed. The pens of its beaks are dry. Day will never sound the same. Nor night know which song wakes her. Yeah, well done. Good. They're very good, aren't they? Good. <laughs> <laughs> Top marks. How are we doing? Oh, yes, of course. Yeah. Right. How are we doing that? Okay. You've got those done that. Yep, good. Right. Um, <coughs> thank you. Uh, I did a sequence of poems that um, took place in dialogues between the poet John Clare, the so-called peasant poet, and the gypsy, Wisdom Smith, a real-life character, both of whom had a great friendship. I'm very interested in male friendships of that sort. Um, anyway, this sequence of poems, The Gypsy and the Poets, uh, was, was like a novel in, in sonnets, and I found sonnets in sonnets. As I went. I'm going to just read you one of them. Um, it's, called, it's called The Invisible Gift, and it's basically about trying to get inside, if you like, the poetry of friendship, actually, the poetry inside the making of poetry but also how friendship works the invisible gift John Clare weaves English words into a nest and in the cup he stipples rhyme like mud to clutch the shape of something he can hold but not yet hear and in the hollow of his hearing he feathers a space with a down of verbs and nouns heads up. There. Claire lays it down and nestles over its forming sound. Taps and lilts, the steady knocking of the nib on his hand until it hatches softly beneath him. And when he peers below his palm, he spies its eyes, hears its peeps, but does not know yet what to think. He strokes its tottering, yoke-wet crown, feels a nip against his thumb, buds of muscle springy at the wing, and all the hungers of the world to come for this small singing. And before we have our break, yeah. um, I'm the best teacher like that. <laughs> 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 
fussy resistant. Jolly, <laughs> jolly, jolly. Oh yes, that's right. Yeah, I love the my poems about kind of uh, stories, narratives, and personae, undeniably. And being half gypsy is something I can sometimes invest with. There's something I, that people don't know a lot about. Is that um, I don't know about any of you in this room, but I have type one diabetes, type one diabetes, and um, it does shape your life a lot. It's like almost like a terrible poetic form. <laughs> that means you have to behave in particular ways. And I'm not saying it's uh, it's uh, anything virtuous or good about it, but I think I I think it's um, in a strange way it's been a making of me. It should be the unmaking of me, and it often is, just to say. It often is the unmaking of me. But, but uh, anyway, the, the protagonist of this poem, this is one of the few poems, it's a lot longer than the one I'm going to read out, by the way, um, is having what's called a hypoglycemic uh, episode in the middle of it. Uh, just if you wonder what's going on, as it goes elsewhere. And uh, I know my doctor's been very impressed by this. This is a good description of what it actually is like. But it's also simply about storytelling. Uh, having written a lot of books as poems are stories and books which really are novels or short stories about what is the nature of storytelling what's the responsibilities of a storyteller what what is fiction um and as somebody who's a scientist it's always something which is something of a bit of a gnawing thing, thing in me without a doubt about the nature of fiction so i'll read this and i'll break and i'll say i won't read all of it good god <laughs> <laughs> so Anyway, his stories. The protagonist, which is not me, despite the fact he has type one diabetes and is a storyteller. The protagonist is indeed a storyteller, and the poem is called "Spinning." Spinning. I love those stories when the world they wake whitens on the horizon of your own eye, as though another sun had neared us in the night or some new star flowered from the dark matter. They shift on a single movement of mind or image. A suicide leaps into space, but lands on a high ledge where he is found by fishermen with ropes and jokes. The man says he thought the night was his own death, and it was, nearly. His hair has sprung into white fright, as if his head had been dipped into the dyes of the dawn. What's expected of me? More so because unexpected. Is that I will go on telling and making and spinning. More so because I was guilty of the crime called happiness. Stories for children, when well, we know all of us are children. And now that I possess only my own poised possession, that I shall deliver these tales from some darker attention. There they squat around the fires with their teeth glittering. They are moving on from their roll-ups to their shared pipes, from red wine to glugs of gold whiskey. They are settling in as if they were waiting for some long haul between settlements. They say language shows you. 
so my stories should show you what worlds I've wound through, whose voices I've breathed in. That smoke spooling from their mouths. The fire's smoke swirling above them make an understood utterance, a ghost of what we see, what we pass through, and what might be watching us, watching ourselves, waiting. If that's too curdled for you, try truth. A five-year-old boy dies. His parents bide by his body for three days. Then they fill a rucksack with his best loved toys. Another rucksack embraces the child's body. They drive to a cliff, hitch on the rucksacks and throw themselves spinning off the earth. What does their tale say about how much they loved each other and how much their son loved and was loved. Their story makes something cease in you. They drove as if going on holiday in a camper van. They say language shows you, and this story shows to me that truth and even love grow impossibly possible. This is not what you have come for. It is not what you wanted. Where is the magic-eyed metaphor that reverses them into life? Why am I not spilling word lotions into your ears that allow these three loving people to meet in another place, laughing and singing and unbroken. Why doesn't the story wake the boy? My own story interests nobody. Not now I'm on my own. Making story cost them nothing but my drink and caravan. It's the hour before I begin, when the clouds close down, and I'm lacking of language, and in a desert of image, and nothing knows nothing. I am not even nowhere. Now the word trail slows in my mind, my blood sheds all sugar, and I can recognise no thing, not even the walls of my van, or who I am, or what I will later, maybe, become. I used to reach out at those times, touch my wife, and say, my wife, then I would come back. I would come back into life.
That's where I'll stop it for now. That's uh, what a wonderful way to end that first part. It's um, is it something that you're? Is it in progress, or is, is that poem? That poem is finished. Is it? Yes, that poem is a hundred lines long and in ten ten line stanzas. Oh, okay, <laughs> and, it, and it's um, it's quite new then to to you, is it? It's a new. Yes, yeah, newish. It's newish. Um, the poems I'm writing at the moment, as I'm sure you do, work with hundreds of poets. The poems I'm writing at the moment, the ones which are absolutely obsessing me. Yes, that's you could tell uh, that, couldn't yeah. you, yeah. from yes. the reading? Yeah. Yes. Yes, um, and um, you know. It's it's, uh, it's one of those things where you know you just know when that's happening, don't you? Yes. Mm. And it's uh, and and are you writing around this um, theme of the of of the of, of diabetes particularly, or is it a nope. broader than that? No, I'm going to the I, I'm going into the uh, uh, minds of various characters and writing uh, monologues from their point of view, which is in often dug with lots of other characters that they go through. Real characters. That's a really good question. <laughs> 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 no, I think they're probably... Um, you know, you, all of you have taken decisions in your life at various points that could have led to an alternative universe, an alternative you, and that could have gone off and become another alternative you, and this, that you are sitting here full of immense infinitesimal possibilities of other people that you mm. could have been or even are mm. decisions that you may have taken that you mm. might have regretted actually something that was maybe struck you as a great opportunity to sort of change your life in that real in that real way and you chose actually not to that itself would have all sorts of repercussions and you'll have dream, been dreaming about that old alternative thing going on over there. Even though that alternative there actually is part of you too. Those are what the stories are about. Mm -hmm. When you ask about, are they real people? Mm. Yeah, they're all those people that I'm not. <laughs> but could have been. And they're all talking back at me um, about this stuff. One of, one of whom, by the way, as I found absolutely fascinating, is the heavyweight champion Tyson Fury, who's, the, um, who, who's a gypsy. He's a Romany. Uh, he's 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 sexist. He's horrible. He's uh, and yet when you dig into him and interview him, he's incredibly fascinating. He's he's bipolar, and and his um and his view of himself is is um, cataclysmic. He just wants to die. He wants to kill himself all the time. And um, and when he's in that state, he's he's merciless with himself and the things that he's he's said, you know. Uh, he's a person who has a kind of a terrible thing about Christians and loves Muslims. Well, all of his uh, um, people who help him in his gym are Muslim, because he won't trust Christians. Uh, uh, I mean, he's a fascinating man, you know. He's a, uh, and and he, at the same time, he hates the if you like non-Roma, non-Romanies. He knows he's completely dependent upon them, and and he's he, he can barely read or write. But one of his things that he said in an interview was that he really wants if he could learn something, if he was, could. Just please sit down and do a course in something. I said, I would really like to do a course in writing, he says. And, and um, anyway, I've written this poem for him from his point of view, and I will see it at some point. I have no idea what he's going to make of it. <laughs> 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 um, but I really enjoyed writing that. It was a fantastic challenge because there's part of me that kind of twigs that behaviour from my, where I come from um, and my childhood and the kind of people you could become. 
There's no reason why I should have done my O-levels, A-levels in Guns University and be the first person in my family to do that. There's no reason really at all apart from I chose to do that. Mm -hmm. If I had chosen the path that other people were laying down for me, I would not be doing this stuff that I'm doing right now. <laughs> and I might indeed be more like Tyson Fury, you know? <laughs> um, and a lot of my people who are of that age are like that. But I do find those people fascinating. I do think it's also very important. I think Alison and I have talked about this in the past. I really find it interesting and unnecessary writing about people who don't, don't really get written about. Mm -hmm. um, I've written about, um, you know, people being thrown off gypsy sites. I've written about people working rubbish jobs in circuses, uh, people being um, just cursed throughout their lives. I was writing a poem about... Um, what it's like to be on the road at the moment where all the gypsy sites are closed. I was writing about road hauliers. And these are all people I kind of know. And they, 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 they never get written about, really. Um, and it's not you're doing this for some kind of political aim. It's just that they are naturally incredibly fascinating. You know, and, um, and their life's just waiting to be, to be uh, written about. And at the time of Brexit and leave voters and this kind of divided society and all that, a lot of the people I'm working with, I have to say, are people who would leave. And and um, although I'm completely on, not on that side at all, how am I to leave? I'm definitely not. Um, they are, some of them are, have fascinating lives. When you probe away at it, you think, God, where does this hurt come from? Mm. How self-inflicted does this hurt? When you talk about being, um, if you like, uh, left behind, to what extent have you left yourself behind? It is also so interesting pressure you have to interview and interview and interview this subject and think about it. Anyway, yes, that's a bit of a diversion, but yes, that's what it means by real lives. Sure, they're real. <laughs> sort of. There's a lot of opposition when you showed interest in going to university. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, completely. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, and it's yeah. not optically taken that seriously. I don't know if you're familiar with a friend of mine who's published an amazing book last year called The Stopping Places, and his name is Damien Labat, mm. and he's the same as I, half, half, basically half a gypsy. Um, and he went to Oxford University and read theology, and was really unhappy there. Mm. Um, but but he's a super articulate guy, and he wrote this amazing book about, about well, actually, I think it's a psychodrama, it's about being a gypsy in Britain today. Mm. So was it hard to integrate in you? I would have loved to. Uh, ten years ago, I would have been much more amenable about that. But it's first of like, dear Damien. Um, despite his success, he's he'd find it impossible to be in a situation like this. Mm. We've talked about this, so you know it's, he still hasn't got over that. It's difficult mm. because if, you, if you're pissing people off on your your own side for, for donkey's years, then you're pissing people off on the other side. <laughs> can tell you for donkey's years, uh, and you know I could tell you a, a dozen stories that would make make your hairs rise <laughs> up your arms about racism and Romanies, uh, and um, uh, but I won't. This Where isn't I the time. Where I live in Ledbury, there were a few settled travellers, and yes. when I and I found all the children so interesting. They were out in nature. They would come to my door with, you know, once they came with their, um, what, actually I can't remember the name, the word for them now, the little uh, furry creatures that they send down rabbit holes. Ferrets! Mm -hmm. Thank you, I just yeah. couldn't remember. <laughs> 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 not not teddy verse. <laughs> and he said, what shall I do with this? I'm like, oh, I, I don't 
Certainly you've got more idea than me. <laughs> but that was, they were just all out there. They had horses that they yeah. used to keep on a cricket pitch. Well, if, you, if you met if you met British gypsies, you'd basically find that they were as uh, British or as European as you and me. Mm-hmm. Actually, we were completely normal, um, and actually most of most most of you guys are, are, are basically odd, odd gypsies as well. It's one of the things I keep pressing and pressing and pressing is that up to basically the time when um, about eighteen forty. A lot of people were settling in the bigger in the bigger towns and cities, and the industrial revolution was kicking in. You were all gypsies. Mm. One of the reasons that Claire and Wisdom Smith got on so well is because they're both labourers. They're mm. both casual mm. labourers, seasonal labourers. Apart from that, Wisdom Smith followed the seasons around, and Claire was to stay in his. It helps them. That was the d- mm. distinction, and also he was seen as more more respectable because of that. But otherwise, you're all you're all. By your very DNA and history and ethnography, going back uh, only a few thousand years, travellers. Well, what um, defines you as a, as a gypsy, is it, language? Well, it's genealogy, uh, family. Um, where, 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 how do you work that one out? Oh, well, it comes from my mother's side. That's what it comes from. She's from a long line of Cartelais, and her family were on the road um, when she was a child. Are there particular physical characteristics that go back with no. genealogy? No, no. I'd like. It'd be fun to say there were, but I'm sure my <laughs> mum would definitely answer the ascent there. Uh, but but because uh, she's very much of the of the idea that she possesses the third eye, for example, mm-hmm. and can see the futures and see the past. No, she can't. She can't <laughs> do any of those things. I would never say that to her. Mm-hmm. Um, but but that's certainly not some racial characteristics we pass on. But it's certainly a, a, a state of hand you can learn to do. Um, but no, there's no particular racial thing. People have looked at me and said, "Oh yes, I can see the way you are." No, you couldn't. No, <laughs> no you can't. You can't do this at all. Um, but you likewise, know. there's no initiation ceremony. No, 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 not at all. No, and you can't really become a gypsy. And I don't know why anybody would want to actually. Um, there's a thing romantic about it. Basically, gypsy is a is a is a term that's used kind of um, as a as a badge, really. Um, the word that's used by most people of that sort is you're a traveller. Mm-hmm. You're a traveller, but it's confusing for people. And also, uh, I know it sounds a bit odd, but people don't like using Romany that much because um, basically most people think that it means simply music you're Romanian. Um, and there's nothing wrong, nothing wrong with being Romanian, but the confusion between Romany and Romanian is one that's um, the far right have been feasting on the donkey's ears. There's no need to help them out with any more of that stuff. So, you know, it's a tricky one. Language is one of the things, although most of most of the Roma that I know don't speak Romany at all. And when I've gone to Tottenham, of course, for travellers at uh, Totley Barton, it was exclusively for travellers, uh, um, I was they were staggered by how much Romany I knew. Uh, and I had to point out without any shame that I'd learned a lot of it from books. And there's no, there's no shame in that. Um, the notion that somehow you'd have to acquire orally and on the road is again just a form of stereotyping. There's no point. There's no thing wrong with you acquiring it as a like, from, from scholarship. One of the thankful values of my going to university is that I know how to use the library without without fear. Sort of. Where did, you, <laughs> where did your support come from when you made that choice to go to university? From my school librarian. Mm. My sixth form librarian. You shall ever be honoured. When I won the Ted Hughes Award, yeah, I thought because I didn't expect to win it, I hadn't, I hadn't made a speech. 
And like everybody else in the shop. <laughs> <laughs> I was at the back of the queue. I was looking to watch the queue. We'll be gone in five minutes. <laughs> so I had to get up into the queue. I think, well, I need to make a speech. And so I sort of did a speech from the heart. And so the first person I thanked was my mum. And then I thanked my wife. And then I thanked my school librarian. Mm. And uh, that was because of her. Anne Ashworth is her name. Unfortunately, you know, suffering from terrible difficulties in, in her home. Um, but but she, was, um, she was a person who really wanted to be a poet. And she was in charge of our sixth form library. It was a comprehensive school. And uh, because she was into poetry... We subscribed to PN Review. <laughs> I remember writing about this. Yeah, yeah. Blackpool. Can you imagine we subscribed to PN Review? And I was like 16 years old. I was thinking, in fact, I'd not really read it. The first poem I read was 15 years old. It was a Ted Hughes poem because I had to read it. Right. So I got to sixth form doing uh, biology, chemistry and physics. <laughs> and next thing I'm writing poetry and going thinking, poetry, how do I read poetry? Oh, it says poetry magazine called PN Review. <laughs> not knowing this wasn't like, you know, amateur photographer or something <laughs> picking up thinking, oh, yeah this is good stuff I could get on with this you know? <laughs> not really so that a lot of things that I was reading were actually in translation no, I was reading this stuff thinking this is really weird shit you know if you went to if you went to that pink floor you're like thinking yeah this is I'm liking this this stuff this is really weird shit and it was in, it was like Lorca in translation I had no idea I was totally ignorant but that's how I got into it and it was my librarian who did that and my librarian said to the head teacher of the sixth form she said to her that she reckoned that I probably shouldn't have sports on Wednesday afternoon, despite the fact I actually like sports, but should read poetry instead. That's just so weird, isn't it? Mm. Um, but, but there was a special dispensation of sort, and I was allowed to go to the library every Wednesday afternoon with Anne Ashworth and talk about poetry. And then talk, we'll talk about my work as well, and talk about her work for two years. And then she wrote the letter to Charles Tomlinson, the poet who was a, a reader at the English Department at the University of Bristol when I was going to there to do zoology. And he very kindly invited me to see him five weeks into my undergraduate career. And um, and that's that's how that relationship began. I was passed from one poet to another, and then so and so forth. And as some of you may know, I published last November... Charles Tomlinson's selected poems. I did his the first ever posthumous edition of his selected poems with this big biographical thing at the end, and with his dictionary of national biography as well. Century, and uh, that came out. It's doing very well. Uh, Charles died three four years ago, but none of that would have come about without that letter from Anne Ashworth. You know, and librarians are wonderful beings. Are there any librarians here? <laughs> well, if you're not, if you are hiding behind your. <laughs> and what about um, song and stories then in your yeah. childhood? Was that a part of your childhood? Yes, but again, not dodging the question, I think it's probably for most people here. Yes. Yeah. song would be. And that would be popular song as much as anything. Uh, and not kind of Romany song. No. Or, or, or folk song. My mum was a great fan of the musicals. We used to, we used to. My my dad was my dad was a very active member of the household. So my mum had the cultural run of the household basically. So she used to pump out musicals, uh, day and night. You know, I have to say I got really into some of this stuff too. I still am quite fond of the old South Pacific and Carousel and, stuff, and, and West Side. So I, actually, I know an awful lot of, of musicals, and also I know an awful lot of music because it was pumped out in our house. And I found it strangely, you know, engrossing. And a lot of stuff I do with, with the wordplay, it's definitely, mm. it's kind of probably derived a lot from, and the thing I do with song as well, it's definitely derived from things to do with things like, particularly West Side Story or Kiss Me Kate, thing, uh, where I was really entranced by the, the, the interlude between the, 
The fact that sometimes there wasn't any music, but you did it with your mouth. It was almost like a spoken word, in fact. Mm-hmm. And then the music would, would come on and do something magnificent with it, but often it was quite incidental towards the verbal action. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, Chloe, you're quite right, is that once I started getting into uh, Roma culture from my mum and discovered flamenco culture, I found a great deal of uh, massive interaction between that kind of uh, energy and vigour in language, energy and vigour in language of the Roma in terms of flamenco and 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 and, and folk song, mm. particularly in terms of what's called duende. Oh. Duende, this quality of what's called um, darkness with, a, with an art uh, with an art that mm. Lorca talks so brilliantly about is belonging to flamenco and folk music, mm. but which actually I think can be found everywhere. Mm. 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 I mean, hi David, I'm Rain. Oh, indeed, have we have? Hi, yes. Nice. Um, I'm interested in that whole thing because I'm half Romani. I did a and I grew up with my Roman family. Of course, family. yes, yes. Um, I wrote about and we your did book. have, we yeah. had, you know, we had a fiddle player. My grandfather played the harmonica. We did have these sort of songs with gypsy words in them. Yes. But what I wanted to ask you um, is, is, is your childhood? When you were a child, did you were you given books? Were you encouraged to read? Because I wasn't. Mm-hmm. I didn't have any books. My granny didn't read or write. Um, I taught yes. my granny to read and write. And my mum very occasionally had magazines. And I had to ask for books. I had to, you know, say, couldn't you buy me a book? And I wondered what your experience of being a child and were there books in the house? Did you? It was less cultural and more along yeah. the lines of um, gender, actually. Yes. Is that uh, my father was a kind of hardline working class guy who wasn't particularly attentive to the fact my mum was Romany. And looked down upon it, and said he wasn't interested in cultural books. To be blunt, mm. and it was trivially violent. Mm. And my mum was very aspirational. Yeah. It was very um, thumbed down by her own culture, by her own mum and dad as well. She wasn't being allowed to go to school, but was really aspirational, and but and found it kind of found it was its way through me. Yes. So she would inst- instruct me. Is the wrong word? Ask me. Is a better word? Uh, to go to the library. Libraries again. Yes. The local, the local yeah. library every yeah, week, and and um, <laughs> and I'd choose her books for her. Yes. I was a mission. Mm-hmm. I'd have to go. I'd have to remember not to repeat the books. And she'd read four books yes. in that week, four novels in that week, and I'd choose the books. Yeah. Um, so I was her you know, mm-hmm. person who did that. But I'm not sure she picked this up about me. Though. Is that? Because um, my mom was also uh, into musicals, and that's yeah. you know that's how yeah. I started singing and dancing yes. from a very early age from the musicals like Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers, and yeah. And I, say, a, I, I don't think Peter said I'm, I'm trivially independent, yeah. and, and, I, and I don't think it would matter really um, what my parents would have said or done, yeah. or uncles or or my stupid brother, or my mm. mom's sister. I don't think it matters what any of them would have said or done. Yeah. I would have gone on and, and striven to do what I really yeah. wanted, me, I me felt yeah, that I should too. try to do. Yeah. Um, and so going to university, I was dead set. And part of that was simply that I had to get out of Blackpool. I had to. <laughs> and I'm not being horrible about Blackpool here. I really had to escape that place yeah. uh, and, and go and find something yeah. to mm. do with my, my, my aspirations and dreams and brain. That was yeah. never going to be fulfilled. And whenever I go back there, it's like going back into a dark cave. Yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, well, I didn't go into. I, I went into dancing to the West End. Yeah. I became a dancer at seventeen, and then eventually came into writing. Yes. Much later. Yeah. Like, I don't think there's anything wrong with escaping from your background. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. 
and the, and there's um right the, there's a lot of that trauma in your poems, isn't there? And yeah, with you and yeah. um so I'm 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 interested in that and uh and that process of writing that and then also deciding to publish that work. If you is, is there anything yeah. you would say? About well, I don't know about you, but I mean you all have terrible. Everybody in this room has tragedies. Everybody, everybody in this room has is in some form a tragedy too, um, and has a story or stories that that uh, sometimes haven't been told yet, or are being told by you, or will be told. And sometimes it's very difficult to find the the moment when that's going to be done. Mm. Um, yeah, it was a terrible childhood, and therefore I think about this as I was driving here. I should phone up my mum as I told her as I phoned her up the other day. I used to say to her, actually, mum, you know. I know you didn't protect me against that guy or my brother when I thought, but actually it was probably a good thing from the point of view of my development because I've really fed on that ever since. <laughs> and, I, and it's never kind of kept me back, you know? So, but the point is about how do you turn this into, into mm. art, yeah? Mm. Or, or the moment, well, I was saying to you, everybody has this moment when you can do so. And I felt I, I basically assayed a moment when I felt I could write about my poor mum and the way that she was kind of battered and suppressed and treated like dirt and um, about my, mother, my, my my father's incendiary violence mm. and how that can affect you and the way that it affected me which I couldn't avoid but which I think I'm kind of pressing this button quite a lot this evening it's a bit like type 1 diabetes it can, be, it can make you, you know, it can help you in a funny way though I'd never think so at the time uh, one of the things that he gave me his gift if you like was a stammer and he gave me that at a very early age when I was seven up to the age of five I was articulate and then I got I started the stammer when I was seven because it was just I mean without putting it into he beat it into you mm. and it wasn't just beating it was psychological mm. terror and you know I mm. stammered and I couldn't I couldn't escape this this um cage that my mouth had got into and and then he, they died, but I still couldn't get out of this cage of the stammer. And, and I was aware that this stammer could have made me do all sorts of things that I didn't want to do, uh, mainly to do with speaking. Mm. So, bad ex bad example. I was really good at English at school, uh, but I wouldn't ever read out. So in the year when the teacher demanded that we were reading stuff out, I fell sick mm. Mm. for every lesson. I went from being number one to number 33 in class. And nobody asked. Mm. Mm. Um, uh, there have been various moments where, <coughs> you know, you, something's, being, something's happening in front of you. It's an important meeting where you know you could tell the truth. And because you, don't, you can't speak, and you know you can't speak, not that you won't, you mm. can't, mm -hmm. without having to say it in a particular way, that wouldn't be the truth. You don't say the truth. This is, these are hard moments where you're thinking, that dad is a really bad gift. On the other hand, the inability to speak when I was 12, 13, 14, when you're becoming interested and engaged with the world, <coughs> was at the same time horrible, but also at the same time forced me to try to speak in ways which were at angles to what is hardest to say. Uh, so my poor little brain synapses definitely evolved and sprung into all sorts of thesauruses for possibility behind, around the words that one wanted to say but could not say. And I became quite florid. 
as I wove around his words. And as you um, become interested in, in sex when you're like 14, 15, 16, you want to talk to other people, you know, the impossibility of speech is sometimes a terrible impediment. Mm. Although your silence can be interpreted and misinterpreted in particular ways. Mm. And your floridity when you're not silent can actually sometimes be unusual mm. without you realising it was. Mm. And therefore all these things are thinking, how did that work? How did that silence work coupled with that terror? So sometimes silence works brilliantly and sometimes it's not. I learned how to speak. Obviously you see me in front of you. So how did I learn how to speak? Briefly. My therapy consisted of the following. <laughs> uh, in Blackpool, there's lots of seasonal jobs. And if you're poor, as we were, you take the seasonal jobs. So I took this job in a bingo hall. Uh, and the job I got was the humblest job of all. But it required no speech, Chloe. <laughs> and it required you to give, give out change to all the people. All the people came in for the wakes weeks. Every week they'd come in for the Saturday, fleshly day. And you sit there, they just go out fires and tennis. And, and you, get out, you have this bag of change, you say, yeah, I love that. And you, go, and you give lots of change to buy the bingo cards. And weeks and weeks of this was just a joy. No words, change, you know. And, and a, f a terrible pay, admittedly. Awful money. But then the manager of the bingo hall spotted potential in me for some reason. <laughs> and promoted me to be a bingo caller <laughs> <laughs> without any any conversation with me I think he was just short of somebody and, but the pay was about five times as much and also if you called for five hours non-stop you got an amazing bonus mm. uh, and also because it was these kind of plastic slot bingo things that they used uh, I had this gift I didn't read, of memorization. I could memorize all the little slots and holes. I could memorize all the numbers. So I could already see immense possibilities in this promotion. Anyway, so I went up to the bingo hall, this thing, terrified and shaking, but concealing this terror. And then when my time came to call, I simply impersonated how bingo callers are called, which you call with a heightened sense of rhythm. You completely ignore the audience. You pull out these things and you always sing them out. You sing it out. It's a song. Yes. It's like a game. And I, as I was doing this kind of game, I realised I wasn't stammering. You see, you know, all the twos, 40, you know, all the twos, 22, four and two, 42, on the blue, five, five. And you see, you're singing this stuff out. Da, 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 da. And in my head, I'm just doing this, not thinking about something. And in the other part of my mind, I'm, I'm counting the money <laughs> that, I'm, that I'm getting for the terror. You know? Yeah, that's another pound. That's another pound. Keep going for five hours. Keep going for five hours. And all I learned was simply that there's an element of rhythm that works, singing kind of works but also a slight element of performance mm -hmm. that's in there too when you're not quite yourself mm -hmm. and that's how I disengage with that though it doesn't work very much in personal conversations but I'm still and that leads me to my question because the, the last poem in your set that you just read seemed to have an effect on me like a spell and it was like weaving a spell and um, it just brings to mind um Murray Howe, who was here last year from America, talks mm. about the incantation yes. aspect of poetry. And it just seems to me, you know, with your bingo performance and with other aspects, it, can you, is there an aspect of magic and spell making with your poetry? What do you think? Mm. <laughs> 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 yes, I think so. I think mm. so. 
Um, yes, of course, of course. And, and also, it could change people's mood completely, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's all right. I, I don't know how many people have children. I have three children. I've looked after lots of other people's children too, and I've done lots of reading to them and, and if like performing to them too. And I know that I can change the moods of children quite simply by reading in particular ways and so going to character and reading in rhythms and uh, flowing into characters. But I have to give give a lot of myself to, 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 to do that. You have to give yourself away. And children really know when you're not doing that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but in children's literature, and if you think about children's literature that's affected you when you were a child, that magical incantatory spell power this stuff mm-hmm. can really take you a long way, can't it? And actually carry into your life to such a degree, it might change it, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, and the rhythms that you're talking about, actually even just the rhythms yes. lower you into something. Yes, and, s- and, and alter your metabolism. And alter your physiology and your heartbeat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all this is so. Um, if you're being cruel about it, you'd talk about it being species of rhetoric too that you're uh, deploying. I think I think that I don't sit down and write these books with an ice. I'm going to deploy <coughs> certain tropes of rhetoric here and throw in an anaphora mm-hmm. here. Um, I, I'm, to be honest with you, I'm rather unaware of that aspect of this work, um, but I am aware that I do use. Um, a hell of a lot of internal rhyme, mm. uh, masses of, of, of consonants, mm. and I deploy increasingly a very long kind of line that sounds like pentameters. It sounds like pentameters, but they're not. They're, they're going pentameter more, pentameter more, pentameter more, pentameter blah, da, da, da. And I'm doing that kind of deliberately because it's the way that I sp- speak the poems. Whenever I try to reduce them down and boil them down into pentameters, I always feel like I'm letting my gob down <laughs> a little bit. It's like that poem I read first about the about the Narnians and Amalda. It's really like a sweet poem. It's a sonnet. It's in perfect pentameters and it's in a strict sonnet form. I'm quite happy. With, I'm quite happy with how it looks. I read that because of where we are. There's part of me that still thinks it's part of that I don't really like because I know it's not like that. It's, there's no real attack to it, um, and and the real test of this attack is my own children. If I read that to them, that wouldn't stir them up at all. Uh, but I, I, one of the tests I did I do deploy with some of my work that sort of songs it's not kind of rude or offensive, like Tyson Fury. But I did find that my thirteen year old had been reading a draft. It's not finished. Is I do test it upon my kids. I do test poems. I test the whole sonnet sequence of the Gypsy and Poet upon my kids as they were being written. If I got something out of you know a, a six year old boy. Yeah, it was probably working out pretty well, you know. Yeah. Um, but that thing that you're on about is something I think that goes into your son, which is very, very early on yeah. hopes. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And it can last with you forever, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yes? We could even be born with it. It could be something we to. Do you think so? Yeah, mm. I think there's a cultural resonance. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm nothing like my, I'm nothing like my siblings. They, they, this would be nonsense to them. You but, know? Do you, but do you have to be? I mean, no, not at all. I, mean, you, you I just really like to believe it. I'd like to believe in that mm. with all my heart. But I'm not sure if it's true of me at all. I don't think I was born with it. I think 
Because mm -hmm. feels true to me with your Romani descent as well, and and that the words, you know, the the tunefulness of those words and the. But then again, it's an art. I've learned it over many. Uh, I've learned it over many years. <coughs> I certainly wasn't doing it when I was when I was five. Uh, although I was interested in Richard Scarry, and you know, but but you know, one's ways into poetry are are are, are unusual, um, and it wasn't a natural. It wasn't a natural thing for me. That's why I'm trying to to be very honest about this. This is not natural. Uh, it'd be very easy to go for that. Um, and I don't want to. And I don't want to because I don't think I think it's. I think actually learning is very important mm. and uh, training is very important and sort of delving into the what really what you're talking about really actually is the old word mystery yeah the mystery of art mm. right yeah. whereas the mystery of art isn't actually a, a puzzle it's a craft yeah. it's a guild it's a practice it's a whole massive job uh, Welsh bards used to be trained for 30 years to become bards. Yeah. I'm not advocating that, but it's it's not a bad model yeah. into that mystery. <coughs> and that applied to a lot of art forms, yeah. particularly sculpture too. Sculpture. Yeah. Mind you, wouldn't it be great to have an art form course that lasted for like 30 years and started <laughs> up with babies? Yeah. That would be so good. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not joking, by the way. That would be ideal. I love working with kids and with, uh, with uh, babies. What about your, your work as a scientist then, and that idea of... Because I was curious when you mentioned um, science at the beginning and what you think might be the difference between sci a scientist and a poet or yourself, you know, the, the, what, how you work. Well, I, don't, I felt no particular distinction between myself about these things at all, Chloe. No. But a lot of other people did. Yeah. Th that, was, that was my dilemma, um, is, and it still is. The question of truth, Actually, which you were talking yeah, about. Yeah, or, it's a, it is a, it is a dilemma. Yeah. Obviously, there are lots of really great popular scientists, some of whom I know well, and, and they've got no problem with the with the uh, blurring of the borders between different no, uh, forms of knowledge. Uh, but most people can't deal with that, and they mm. won't deal with it, and there's no kind of almost a point in trying to push it is that most schools are like this mm. even even uh, mm. the, even even the best schools sometimes mm. struggle against this yeah um certainly at universities this the, the stratification against which i fought and forced with dozens of projects and books could be seen as a complete and abject failure mm. uh because you know it's very difficult to get these people in the room talking about these things mm. um Knowledge works in a very strange way. It's sometimes actually interdisciplinary. It's a particularly fruitful way for it to work at the moment. However, in the past, in our most recent human history, Michelangelo was quite capable of saying that you should study the science of the arts and the arts of science. And nobody had a problem with the fact that he could produce fantastic works of art, wonderful poetry, Michelangelo, and also invent the helicopter and war machines. You know? But he had good patrons. <laughs> yes, we need more good patrons. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I think um, unless anyone has a burning question to ask, we're going to have an interval soon for any further questions, but could we have our final phone? Yeah, sure. I was going to ask you if you wanted to actually ask me, if any of you know any of this stuff, if you'd like to make any request for anything. Because rather than doing it the longer poem I was thinking, I think it's probably not. 
Those are questions where Alison is very good at advising her. Please, the game says you with my, as my sister in the art. Good, good idea, good idea. <laughs> do you have any suggestions, anybody? Okay, this relationship between Wisdom Smith and uh, John Clare is a. Uh, well, you know what I should do? I should just hit you with a with a few without explaining them. That's probably that's usual. What she couldn't do at poetry readings at all, but on this occasion, why not? Um, Seems to be about to get back into these guys. They dominated my life, these boys. <laughs> they were all over me. So I think about, you know, you talked about things that go back to your childhood that you're born with. If there's one thing I think I was born with, it's negative capability. <laughs> it's that I've never, ever, been, I think I've had that since I was a baby. I've never been able to escape it. Somebody walks into the room and I'll fall directly into their personality. And, and try and become their minds, you know. Um, a book opens and I'll try and pick up their book. I think I can remember doing that since I was like one and a half, two years old. The idea that Keats had about being in this kind of unconscious state of mind all the time and receiving things. So these two boys, Wisdom Smith and John Clare, really just wrote these things. And so I'm looking at them with such suspicion at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I really want you guys back in my life. Okay, this poem opens with a quote from uh, uh, the Stanford Advertiser of 1825, I think. And, and this is a real quote about gypsies written by a clergyman. This atrocious tribe of wandering vagabonds ought to be made outlaws and exterminated from the earth. <laughs> a clergyman writes... Yeah. Uh, John Clare strives to M.N. Sales Heath with the poisonous passage. Wisdom lights his pipe with it. Spark one up for yourself, brother, but don't scorch a sonnet by mistake. Clare is scribbling lines on the brim of his hat, his paper riffling in the breeze. My dad said all along, when the Gentile way of living and the Gypsy way of living come together, well, that is anything but a good way of living, except for rhyming and your botanising and your good pie. Poet. Two jabbing magpies strut about the camp on a pinprick search. Take those twin piebald preachers begging for our bread. They would pick out our eyes and hearts were we lying dead. All that holds them off is life. The grave is an empty church. Now that's a good measure of what the, what the relationship's like, folks. Um, and here they are, um, eating some stew. On Emma Sales Heath. Wisdom Smith smiles into his steaming bowl. March hares grow spooked in their bouts. So tranced by their boxing, you could pluck them into a sack by the wands of their ears. John Clare hungers. He hugs his bowl and starts writing on the surface of the stew with a spoon. Let the hair cool on the night wind, urges the gypsy. Sip him, but do not speak. The moon uncovers her face. The men slumber with minds awake. For the stew has another mind and unpours the bowls into the pot, shivering to stillness in a dying blaze until the broth is spring water 
and hanks, ribs and lanky legs that dress themselves in bloody fur. Then a living hare leaps from the pot, dancing around Gypsy and Poet, who for this moment before morning are asleep in the great spell, and who dream of striding backwards to Emmonsale's Heath, to where mad hares spar and clash over the surface of the earth. Um, I was going to read a little poem, uh, same sequence, but they have a fight. And I'm doing this simply because of, of the cuff, because I don't think there were enough little fights in contemporary poetry. <laughs> My Tyson Fury poem will, of course, rectify that. <laughs> With full force. Um, yeah, I mean, the John Clare and Wisdom Smith are always having it. You know what male friendships are like? I mean, they're half kind of hatred sometimes and half joy. Um, the Hedgehog is what this poem is called. The Hedgehog. John Clare is in a brown huff. Right, sinking. Yes, he's in a huff. John Clare is in a brown huff. Wisdom Smith is boxing the earth, prancing about him like a stoat. Poets are prickly creatures, jabs wisdom, for all your talk of not having a second skin. So gypsies are way-eyed, one-faced simpleton, sulks Clare. Never an enigmatic word, hearts fairly leaping off their sleeves. I should skin you alive for that, scowls the gypsy. Slit your throat, singe, gut, and truss you like a pullet. Wrap your poet's spiky pelt in thumb-thick clay and plumb you into a fire pit. Pluck clay from your roasted trunk and serve up the dish. Cold poetry. All heart and squashy muscles. Claire punches himself into a ball. I would bind myself so tight, brother, I would never unroll. If a hedgehog will not uncurl, we pop him into a pot of hot water. The gypsy springs at the poet. The poet rabbit punches him in the gut. Wisdom is winded and laughing. Claire grabs the kettle and runs for it. I hope you were hearing my half rhymes. <laughs> this is, I hope you were hearing my half rhymes throughout this. It's my perfect sonnet form. I was doing a reading in Oxford, in Pembroke College, Oxford. And this guy gets with and said, oh, "It's all just prose to me. It's all prose." I was like, "Fuck you!" <laughs> I tell you, look at his rhymes. Guys, excitement going on here. The whole point of the form is to hide the form. I've not heard a spoken word. Um, I should do some, two more of this and then I'll over to you. Um, a steeple climber is a poem actually based upon something that was in John Clare's notebooks. Um, and it's set in a pub called the Blue Bell Inn. The Blue Bell Inn is the helpster where John Clare was born and brought up. I've been there. And in fact, this poem's been there too. I had a strange experience of actually being in the pub with the poem in the poem, in the pub. Right. And so it's set just after time has been called, and John Clare is very drunk, which is why he talks in this way. The blue bell in on Woodgate in the small hours after time. I was thinking, slurs John Clare, now I can turn a poem, I might turn to an even thornier art. Like hedge laying, you mean, winks wisdom. There is more coin in snedding than blotting. My friend, there are men of merit and name who pleach whole hedges of words. They call it criticism. Criticism. 
What I want, Claire pounds the deal table, is more scale. Mishearing, the landlord stamps across with a brimming jug. <laughs> I just mean, stammers John, to be taken to heart by those men. I have been a steeple climber all my life, such as my poor pen. John glares into his ale. Wisdom flickers a finger towards the ceiling. He blows a slow column of smoke up. Everybody in the pub stares and sees what the gypsy has made. There is the steeple. This, wisdom circles his arm. This is the church. And the people. I'll stop there. <laughs> 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 <laugh